0: I think that as I've grown, there's a certain way to admit you don't know something and change your opinion in public that is really helpful, but very hard.
1: You want your competence to be more than your confidence.
0: A lot of times, strategies die these deaths because no single item stands out as having killed them. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately, more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Marketing Podcast, episode number 32. This is Shaheen Khan with
0: Doug Garnett. How's it going, Doug? I'm doing well, although up here in the Pacific Northwest, we're fighting forest fire smoke, so it's not as lovely up here as it usually is.
1: Yes, I'm so glad we don't have to discuss climate change in this episode, but (laughs) (laughs) that might be an easier problem than marketing. (laughs) I'm sure if we want, I can
0: figure out a way to get at the climate change, but probably
1: not. But we usually start with a beautiful, brilliant cartoon. Is there All a right. moon in the cart?
0: All right. So here's the cartoon for the day. There is a man and a woman are having dinner, winding their glasses. Hers is beginning to empty, which I think I know why, given the, uh, the line <laughs> underneath the cartoon. And the guy says to her, let me interrupt your expertise with my compass. Excellent. And I laugh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I have had some thoughts about this. Go ahead. Yeah. What, what are you thinking?
0: Well, I, I mean, first it starts with, you know, we all know how confidence often trumps expertise. And in fact, there is a study reported in a book by Farhad Manju. And in the study, they took some actors and trained them to give medical speeches and then do it with confidence. And they went to a conference and they gave speeches. And there were people coming up after the speeches, just, you know, wanting to connect and work with them. And just, I mean, all that kind of classic stuff of conference. And it was purely because of confidence, because they had intentionally made the speeches. Bullshit. So, <laughs> so the speeches were bunk, but they were stated confidently and that led all kinds of people to want to connect with them. And I think that's a, it's a human problem. I think it affects us, especially in marketing, because we're up against such difficult challenges sometimes that the people who come in absolutely confident they've got the solution win the day a it too often.
1: Yeah. I have given this some thought over the years. And if you go back on my tweet stream, there's probably something from some years ago that alludes to this. And my formulation was that you need competence to address complexity. Mm -hmm. And when complexity increases, you need proportionally high competence to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's a disruption in the market or in society or in technology, and there's a new batch of stuff coming in, you need to go learn it. You need to gain the competence to deal with that. It is true that you need a certain level of confidence to also overcome any adversary or deal with any complexity. So Mm -hmm. good confidence is good, but unwarranted confidence is what we have a problem with. So the equation I sort of came up with, or maybe it's already there anyway, is that you want your competence to be more than your confidence, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would make sure that you do have some confidence, but it doesn't overpower the competence. And then the both of them need to be larger than the complexity that you're dealing with. So that's sort of the inequality, the competence bigger than confidence bigger than complexity is the inequality. Now you could turn them into ratios and say that the ratio of confidence over competence had better be less than one, but sort of approaching one because you do want competence, but not et cetera. So that's how I was looking at
0: it. I think that's great. As you're talking, the thing that occurred to me is when I judge somebody who's confident, I look for whether they have humility with it in that sense that somebody who is truly on top of their game has the ability to, to usually to make fun of themselves a little bit or to, I, I think actually the ultimate statement of confidence is to say, you know, I don't know that answer. Let's talk right. about it. You know, because right. it takes confidence to say, I don't know, especially in a corporate environment where the political sharks or alligators are all ready to chop away at anybody who says, well, I don't know, because that's seen as being wimpy or being vulnerable as, or as an opening. And I think the people who are confident enough to say, that's a good question. I don't know the answer let's go figure it
1: out, know, far beyond. Now, there's a challenge here, and that is when there is a question and you do know the answer. Yes. And you're dealing with somebody who patently doesn't, but they bring supreme confidence to the table that becomes a little bit difficult because then while if you were talking to somebody who is highly sophisticated and really knows what they're talking about, you could see that in that level of high sophistication, there could be other ways of looking at it, but not in the context of the current discussion. So I'm finding myself increasingly to have not enough patience with that. The answer is really known here. It's a solved problem. We don't need to get ourselves... Why do we have to rehash what's already known? Although it's funny that you bring that up. I was just reading
0: a book about a guy named John Boyd. He's worth reading about. He's a fighter pilot and it's all about Pentagon infighting in a lot of ways, but he did some really fundamentally brilliant work at the Pentagon. But he was known for, in my terms, letting generals hang themselves. You know, mm. so he'd be in a meeting with somebody who's just like you described, where he thoroughly knows the stuff and was a fire pilot. And somebody would say something, and he would say, "Oh," and he would tend to basically give them the rope to hang themselves. You know, so if they quote something that's, you know, they say, "Well, your study's all wrong because of this," he'd say, "Oh, that's." do you have that paper? Mm. And you know, through it would find out time after time, of course they didn't have that paper because that's not what the paper said and eventually, you know, he'd let them hang themselves. It makes for a fun read. I'm not sure how it didn't ingratiate himself with a pentagrass. Right, right. right. I think some of this leads though into the second comment we have, which is a tweet from Ethan Decker from uh, whatever that is, tweet on X. I'm not sure what the right way to refer to it is now. But basically there's more to it, but primarily he says bad data sends you confidently in the wrong direction. And I go there because a lot of the times I run into people who are way off target. They're so confident in their off targetness because they believe they have data that shows that they're right. It is incredible how much, well, I have data that shows this, gives an impression of confidence.
1: Well, you know, that's what causes plane crashes when the sensor is giving the pilot the wrong data. You're at this altitude, but you're not. Temperature is this, but it isn't. You're gaining when you're losing. So wrong data is extremely insidious. Mm -hmm. So I sort of was thinking that maybe the bad confidence can come from two reasons. Maybe it can come from bad data or it can come from bad attitude.
0: (laughs) I think some people get it because they learn to win arguments with confidence. Sometimes they can browbeat the opposition into uh, submission. And, you know, we certainly have politicians that we could look at and say, yeah, that's their gig. But they're out there. I kind of worry about them less than I worry about people who are fully convinced they're right.
1: Well, in a corporate environment, this is definitely the boss's problem. You really need a boss who can tell the difference and not allow just blustering confidence mm-hmm. carried a day. Unfortunately, many bosses actually do want the confidence. They want somebody who can confidently take charge and do X, Y, Z. And that is where things go wrong, which is why I say, you know, the root of all evil is bad promotions. And if you don't correct them immediately, then they just fester and they become bad and then they hire bad people on top and then next thing you know you got a bad culture. Yeah, the whole thing is bad.
0: Well, I think too, it you know, it kind of fits back into marketing, it fits with that blog post I've written about the caricatures in marketing, you know, that people expect, culturally expect certain comic book character marketers. You know, you've got the guy like the guy Mm. on Silicon Valley who is, speaks in big audiences and this uh, striding on the stage, wearing the headset confidence. And if you look around Twitter, X, whatever, you'll see a lot of people's profile photos have them with that stage microphone headset mm-hmm. on because they're trying to say look see what I can do you know and at the other extreme you've got the engineer marketer that's a caricature which is oh well they're just they're a brilliant engineer therefore they understand us and can get us to mark and there's a bunch of these kind of caricatures and confidence people play on mm-hmm. you know yeah, yeah they pick their act and then develop their act proposal.
1: yeah I think the walk away for really the marketing professional is a focus on getting it right mm-hmm. and getting it right may mean something that you don't believe, but is actually is there. Sometimes you have data to support it. Sometimes you can do A-B tests. Sometimes you can run experiments, but you have to always be open. You have to always be open. And the only way you're going to always be open is to remove your own ego. But then the moment you do that, you still have to be confident. You still have to press for the right point when you need to, because you know it, And that just makes it very difficult, yeah.
0: I think on that line, I think that as I've grown, there's a certain way to admit you don't know something and change your opinion in public that is really helpful, but very hard. You know, you need some way to not look like you're just flip-flopping and some way to acknowledge if somebody points out, if you come out confidently as a marketing chief, you say, this is the truth. And somebody says, well, studies aren't really showing that. You need a way to say, well, look, I need you to show me more. I'll listen to you. You don't have to change your mind right away. You have right. to show you, you'll listen. And then with listening, have a way to say, you know, those are good points. My experience is it never fully overturns where I might wrong. What ends up happening is we discover a midway or a third way or another route that all of a sudden, for me, tends to make sense. Yeah, But I think that's a, a type of tact that's often lost in our internet-driven world of argument.
1: AI-driven, you mean?
0: Well, shall we we talk AI? Uh, How can we not, right? (laughs) Really, really. There was a decision handed down in a district court, which in a specific case said that AI generated art cannot be copyrighted. Now, of course, all case law is based on the specifics of the case, and I don't know everything there is to know here, but it was a district court judge, Beryl Howe, and she was presiding over a U.S. copyright lawsuit against the Copyright Office because it refused to copyright something a guy had generated with the creativity machine algorithm. And he created the algorithm and generated it and they refused to copyright. And I think it you know, it gets us into beginning to talk in more specifics about all the murkiness around AI and the ability to own any uniqueness you generate out of AI, which should be of concern to Marcus.
1: Definitely. So this seems like a really big deal case because if it cannot be copyrighted, what does that mean? Does that that mean it's in the public domain. That means if you go in and come up with just the right prompt to generate a written or visual item, asset, can anybody use it now or can it just not be? So what are the rights that are allocated to that? So I think, you know, digital rights management of this are really paramount and difficult. Now, existing trademark Copyright intellectual property law already allows for fair use, right? Which is why, you know, audio snippets are always less than 30 seconds long and et cetera, et cetera, because that's what you can do without paying anybody anything. There's also derivative laws that if you use something in a snippet and you'd have a derivative that isn't that, but is influenced by it, what are the ingredients and how much right do you have on that? So all of this for marketing is really a big deal, as you mentioned, because it's all content, it's all creativity, and who owns it?
0: Well, it is a big deal, because if we're trying to get back to some of our other discussions, if you want your assets to be distinctive, you can't have everybody else using it. So if you go off and create an image, and you put work into creating that image, and it's used within, say, all your advertising, so that people instantly say, oh, that's advertising from Doug and Shaheen Incorporated, then you want to have some sort of ability to restrict other people from using it. But according to this, it looks like if you're generating that image from AI, you're in fuzzy ground. What I wonder, you know, speaking of fair use and derivative work and the like, I go back a step earlier in AI and say, well, most of these AI machines are trained by having them look through tons of images or all over the web or whatever. It's all the training that goes into them. So because, for example, if this is trained on Beatles, let it be, You know, is there a problem? Because if it's trained on let it be, well, clearly there is ownership of copyright. To what degree can that copyright be enforced against your thing that came out of an engine trained on let it be? Boy, you got some really nasty questions and potentially in there, and I'm glad I'm not a judge. <laughs>
1: that's right. Well, you do know a couple of lawyers.
0: <laughs> I do know a few lawyers. Yes, that's true. Some of them I know a little, little too well, which means too involved with legal cases. But but that's then there's right. my brother. We, it's really fun to hang out with. So
1: yeah, exactly, he's the one I had in mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV like the doctors you mentioned. <laughs> But there's also this concept of a residual effect mm-hmm. of something that was there. So that might also play. But I imagine this might just mean that if you are using AI to generate stuff, you own it just like when you use an office suite, mm-hmm. then it's just a tool and the root of the creativity was you, not the tool set. However, I think the problem with marketing is you want to be certain of this rather than imagine that it is. So sometimes you have to make sure that that's the case. The other thing is, what if the tool that you using, what if the vendor gets sued? Does that come to you too or is it just them? So you need some indemnification from the software package that you buy or you use and that's kind of also part of the problem.
0: And actually, maybe we should leave listeners with the one comment that Judge Howe made that is, if you're not aware of this, it's useful and it's nothing new, but it's useful, which is uh, she wrote that copyright has never been granted to work that was absent any guiding human hand and added that human authorship is a bedrock requirement copyright. And there you of go. Course, we hear that literally and all of a sudden AI becomes considerably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or you can just decide that that's just a tool. That the human who's operating AI is the one who is responsible. Now, that responsibility could go right and wrong, right? So you're also at fault if something goes wrong. But I think for marketing, because content creation is really what these generative AIs do, and they're in vogue, and Marketing rests on a lot of content, so that it requires clarity. And, you know, the other thing is, whereas in the past you could kind of do a fair use and you were talking about small dollars, now when you have a company that may not be profitable, but their value at $1 billion or whatever it is, then you might want in. You might say, hey, there's just so much money involved that if you've used my content to get there, maybe I deserve something. I need a share of that, yeah. It was a fair thing to do, Yeah. yeah. So that leads to content strategy. <laughs> oh,
0: content strategy.
1: You know, I don't Is have, that a good thing or is that a bad it's thing? It's on my
0: list. It is on my list. So
1: is content strategy okay or is it subsumed underneath <laughs> the business strategy? Actually I really struggle with the term strategy and I'm a strategist.
0: I am a strategist in many ways. I spent I was a VP of strategy. I you know, you were you've spent your career in strategy. But I actually I'm struggling more and more with the term and the idea of the term because it feels like it's become a business of deciding a strategy and then wrapping it up in a nice piece of paper and in a good frame and setting it on a shelf as if creating the thing is our goal and i really struggle with that partly we're responding to a Roger Martin blog post on medium where he titled strategy strategy everywhere but can you figure out what to drink and somebody had asked him about how many flavors of strategy there are and he's got a list of you know brand strategy business strategy client strategy content strategy It's in there. Funding strategy, innovation strategy, podcast strategy. Did we make one of those? Oh, never mind. Uh,
1: I don't think we really did that very formally.
0: (laughs) But I think part of the problem he's pointing out here in the blog post is that this idea that everything needs strategy is just overpopulated the world with things called strategy. And when that happens, it minimizes value of what we might call a true strategy. You know, I
1: think that's one of the difficult.
0: What are your thoughts? Let me uh, throw it back to you.
1: Yeah, I have several thoughts on this. One is I sort of had already given up on the multitude of things. I figured that's just part of the reality of things. So my assumption was and really continues to be that everything is eligible to have a strategy, right? What is your laptop strategy? Fine. You want one? Have one. No worries. You know, I'm not going to get in your way by saying that that's like not the right way of thinking. So I used to have a bad word list and strategy was among them, exactly because everybody had one and you could apply it to anything. And in general, any word that is defined by the context of the word is in the bad word list because its definition is not very clear. We used to joke that, you know, a strategic deal in a sales situation was always the one that you were going to give away for free. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We're doing this for strategic reasons. But it's a strategic reason, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, I think some of this to me is I feel like, the reason I mention it being like in a picture frame on a shelf is I feel like strategy loses its life way too easily. And my role in strategy a lot of times was not to come up with a strategy, but if I was working with a client, I would go talk to people with the client. And as I listened and heard and things like that, what I could do that they couldn't do within themselves is pick and choose pieces and how they go together and related in order to say, hey, you're trying to get from A to B. The question then is also, how do I get there? And the strategy kind of has two ideas in it. One is, where am I trying to go? And the second being, how am I going to get there at a high level, making sure that the strategy can work. So in doing that, I've actually found that most people have a good sense of a lot of that in companies. I have a friend who called himself a business therapist for a very short period of time. Absolutely, Because he finds that you go into business, people in explaining what's going on will reveal the solution because they already know a lot. And I found that was strategic work. But what I could do was pick and choose what mattered from interviewing six or eight people and say, well, here's what I'm hearing from you guys, and this is all consistent. So if you think about this like this, you've got a strategy. And it was a way to make a lot of of,
1: uh, progress. Well, the other word we hear is transformation. Oh, What do we do to transform the business? And how do we use our existing strengths and identify the gaps and kind of build that chemical equation that goes this plus that with a little dose of catalyst can gets you into this thing and takes you over the activation energy. And now you're a better, faster, more capable entity. We'll have to write Roger Martin a note because there's no transformation strategy
0: on his list. I don't know how he missed (laughs) it.
1: Well, I think he basically addresses it by saying that the overall business strategy is where a lot of these things should come from. And if you've done your job, they will all be there and i think that's absolutely right but it's also the case that i mean jack welsh said once that what is strategy but picking a direction and implementing like hell mm-hmm. That's it. That's your strategy. So, you know, he's sort of translated it to a direction.
0: I think so. I guess I've begun to look at this slightly different from listening to Adam Savage's book, Every Tool is a Hammer, which is a, a very <laughs> like good it. book. I mean, he's really, there's a lot in there for those of us doing business because we make our businesses, I think. And so a lot of the disciplines of making things are for us. But anyway, he talks about setting off to build a thing, you know, so he'd get a task, which is... We We need this weapon from this 1950s show, but we want it a little different because it needs to be, you know, this or that or this or that. So he would set off to build something like that and talked about, you know, so first of all, there's a direction there that says we kind of need this, but you notice there's a certain amount of fuzziness in it. And that's what strategy is about. We want to go kind of this way. And we think there's really ripe territory by going that way, but we can't get too specific in the beginning. And then he talks about building, the first step he would do is build really rough kind of cardboard models of a scale version of it, just to play with how do things go together and what's going to make it look interesting understanding You know, there are a lot of things he would learn by building that. And it occurs to me, I feel like that's part of strategy because mm-hmm. if a strategy can't be implemented, it's not a strategy. It's just somebody's idea. It's not a strategy. Mm-hmm. And so taking some coarse, broad steps towards how you to build it. This is where I disagree with Welch, which is, I don't think it's go like hell that way. It's pick a direction, you know, do things to double check the direction and learn how to get there and then go that way. You
1: know, so, you know, within our own little practice, we have a strategy process so to say and it's got four components it starts with data you have to find out what you got and what you're dealing with and all of that the second phase is analysis let's try to understand the data and decompose it into components the third piece is synthesis let's selectively reconfigure and recombine not all the data just some parts of data and that is really where your direction and your initial path And what do you need in order for it to be successful kind of shows up. And then the fourth one, we sort of ended up with change management, change acceleration. And this was because our observation was that most strategies fail because they can't be implemented, that there's too much, too many antibodies inside the company, not enough alignment. People say the same words but don't mean the same thing. And there's already enough momentum with existing stuff, and changing from existing to new means that you may have to give up initial revenue, and that wasn't funded. So, all of those are really part of the change acceleration, change management that. You better know what you're dealing with or it's just not going to happen. Even though the strategy was brilliant, it's just not practical. So you have to make it practical. Now, the bonus is that all of this is sufficiently successful on your watch (laughs) (laughs) so you can actually continue to implement it. Otherwise, you start it. It doesn't go as fast as everybody fantasized that they would and then a new team comes in, and then it just never happens.
0: Well, I think a little bit, it's why I've never made myself into a full-time strategic consultant, because in fact, the implementation part is really, really important to me. And I have no interest in creating strategies with no confidence that they're going to be implemented. Because I think that in my book on complexity, I write about the impact of mass numbers of tiny things. And each tiny thing is immeasurable, but can either build up to great success or build up to great failure. And one of the failures I call the death by a thousand paper cuts. And mm. that's what I see happen to strategy. People come up with a really brilliant direction. Okay, that all make sense. We test it. We know it can be done. And then as, let's call it a bureaucracy or let's call it a, in my case, a lot of times it was production teams would pick it up. All the juice would get lost and they, you know, compromising decisions were made continually and a thousand small compromises later, it's no longer the strategy. And then yeah, people come yeah. back and say, well, what happened to your strategy? You know, just wasn't a good strategy. I mean, I there are so true. many ways it can go wrong. Yeah, yeah, there are. There's so many ways. And I think that so a lot of times strategies die these deaths because, you no single item stands out as having killed it you know so you can't say oh those damn people in you know quality control you know? i have a
1: single item yeah the single item to me is funding well yes i think if you <laughs> you yes. know what i did there right? <laughs> you see what i did there yes I did what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> because i think all of these obstacles are real and should be expected because they always happen and the only force that can bulldoze right through them is funding. So if you fund it for success, then you can demand success. And now you're also braced for it. You know that this thing isn't a 100 k affair. It's a $10 million affair. Right. And if you don't have that kind of money, then maybe you realize that you're counting on being lucky and may the force be with you.
0: Well, and I think a little bit of it comes back to this is again where senior management has to set the stage, right? If there's not enough funding there, then they're the ones saying, wait a minute, if there's no funding. What are we doing? You know, why waste a million dollar effort when we need 10 million? That's silly. And why go that way? But the other one being this death of a thousand paper cuts come because there's not a culture I've found within the company that understands the strategy and knows how to protect it and execute according to it. And reading actually in this guy, John Boyd, I was reading a discussion out of World War II when he was looking at Blitzkrieg and mm. pondering why was it that the Blitzkrieg of the German Blitzkrieg was so effective. And it turned out that each you know division commander understood the whole goal of what they were doing, which was to drive as deep as possible, cut things off, create chaos, intimidate the enemy and don't stop. And so each of the commanders understood that and they were supported by the senior command with a go, just do and do everything you can, whereas in a lot of traditional management, they would have been given a well, go take this hill and call us after you take that hill right, and that just you know slows it down. And I think to some degree, you know we've hierarchicalized whatever that word is, management so much that we've trained people to expect to be told micromanagement details instead of figuring out how to give people room to say, I need this, go make it happen.
1: So I think there's something really profound here. And that is that there are certain objectives that as a business, you are not eligible to pursue without the right culture. If you can't empower the front lines to do the right thing, if the frontline think people are not qualified to be empowered, mm-hmm. then that's not for you. You have to find another
0: objective. It's interesting, you know, Rory Sutherland observed that sometimes the opposite of a good idea is also a good idea. Mm -hmm. And I actually qualify that somewhat based on company, that sometimes what your good idea is, another company has an opposite idea and it fits their company so well that they'll thrive with that idea. Right. I think that we see, for example, in product development, that product, not every company in a category can develop the same product well, because there's, everything has its nuance, everything has skills and everything has little bits that, you know, there's somebody in the company that happens to be passionate about a certain area that makes that product a unique thing. And you can't expect the fully bland mediocrity of companies being identical with that. So sometimes what one company is going to thrive at, another company would fail at, but
1: that company has a different thing that they'll tend to thrive at. And that's uh, the beautiful focus. Excellent. Maybe this is a good spot for this episode. Seems it. All right. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Write, send photos,
0: postcards. (laughs) And please don't interrupt our
1: expertise. (laughs) You're confident. No, wait. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. That's
0: it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of OrionX. Thank you for listening.